Most people my age remember December 5th, 1996, or rather December 6th, because of what happened on December 5th. Now on December 5th, Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan was receiving the Francis Boyer Award from the American Enterprise Institute. And while receiving that award, he gave a speech in which he spoke two little words that probably came to mark his career, if not the entirety of the latter half of the 1990s. That was his irrational, exuberant speech, which everybody immediately focused on those two words in the context of what was becoming the dot-com bubble. And they were focused exclusively on those two words to the detriment of the rest of his speech. Nobody remembers everything else that he said, which was far, far more important, especially to this day, over 25 years later. When he was talking about irrational exuberance, he was what he was really saying is that we have no idea if the stock market is behaving rationally or not. How would we know? In fact, here's a direct quote from his speech, a couple of them. At different times in our history, a varying set of simple indicators seems successfully to summarize the state of monetary policy and its relationship to the economy. Thus, during the decades of the 70s and 80s, trends in money supply, first M1, then M2, were somewhat useful guides. We could convey the thrust of our policy with money supply targets, though we felt free to deviate from those targets for good reason. A lot of doing a lot of work there. Unfortunately, money supply trends veered off past several years ago as a useful summary of the overall economy. Thus, to keep the Congress informed on what we are doing, we have been required to explain the full complexity of the substance of our deliberations and how we see economic relationships and evolving trends. Again, what he was saying is that we have no idea what's going on in the monetary system. So we can't really tell you if the monetary system directly is, is performing the way we need it to. So how could we possibly say the stock market, stock market is behaving rationally or irrationally? We need to have a conversation about money and inflation, and in particular, the context of a supply shock that we're experiencing today and what the markets are actually telling us about it. And they have been telling us all along. Now, I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you for joining me. If you're interested in more material, subscriptions, memberships, exclusive videos, opportunities, check us out at eurodollar.university. We have all sorts of stuff, including membership content, where we get into the background, the history, the mechanics, the diagrams, the complexities of the entire Eurodollar world, which, by the way, segueing into today's video, was really what Mr. Greenspan was talking about in December of 1996, even if he didn't specifically cite the Eurodollar's influence. He was instead talking about the impact of, of the Eurodollar evolution on money more generally, more broadly. And because they couldn't depend upon M1, M2, or any of the particular statistics from before, they were, as he said, we have to, we've been required to explain the full complexity and substance of our deliberations and we seeing how the economic relationships and evolving trends from essentially things like the unemployment rate, the Phillips curve, all the stuff I talked about yesterday. Inflation should be a very simple topic, yet as Mr. Greenspan was stating in 1996, as he would several times throughout the latter 90s into the 2000s, the Fed doesn't do money. They don't understand the monetary system. They don't know how 
to keep track of it. So when we were confronted with something like 1990s supply shock, oil price shock, many people were, th were expecting the rise in oil prices from Saddam Hussein's misadventure into Kuwait might contribute to a reignition of the great inflation. Because by then, nobody really knew what was going on in the monetaries. That was the, the, uh, the money supply trends had veered off path Alan Greenspan was talking about in 1996. What economists and central bankers found in the early 1990s was that the velocity of N2 in particular was behaving wonky. It was doing weird things, largely because of the SNL crisis, but also for other factors involved we don't need to get into here. But by and large, they realized M2 velocity, if velocity is at all a realistic concept, it needs to be stable. It should be relatively stable with only minor fluctuations. Yet here in this instance, they said they saw a massive deviation in M2 velocity. M2 velocity went way up as M2 money supply seemed to go way down. The economy wasn't experiencing anything like what M2 suggested. Therefore, velocity was nothing more than the remainder between M2 and GDP or output. So what Greenspan was essentially confessing to was the Fed had given up on money way back in the early 1990s, although in reality, as he would say in another speech that I highlighted yesterday in 1997, he admitted they had given up on money supply way, way earlier, all the way back in the early 1980s. And if you don't understand the money supply, you don't really have a direct uh, window into examining it, how can you have any idea of whether something is inflation or not. So when he was saying irrational exuberance, he was also he was talking not just about stocks, but also the entire US and global economy. So when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, oil prices obviously spiked and everybody in the late 1990s in particular, or like, excuse me, the late 1980s in particular, they were deathly afraid that this would create great inflation number two. A high, a high contribution from oil prices meant that the CPI was going to go up. And even at that early day, in that early stage, the Fed was already thinking about how they would try to understand the inflation dynamics in a world where they don't do money. Expectations. Would a rise in oil prices lead to the sort of expectation, inflation expectations that would bring the economy of the 1990s back to where it had been in the 1970s? And the answer, of course, spoiler alert, no, that wasn't the case at all. In fact, while Saddam was invading Kuwait, while the consumer price index was going up and oil prices were rising, the U.S. economy found itself in recession. Not a severe one, not a nasty one, but historically speaking, a relatively mild one. But when it came out of the recession, there was no inflation because there wasn't the sort of monetary imbalance that there had been in the 1970s that would create actual inflation. That's the difference. And that's really the conversation that we actually need to have because most people are led to believe, and economics has done such a horrible job educating the public on various differences, various nuances in the behavior of prices, consumer prices, as well as asset prices. Though we don't talk about asset prices or asset inflation today, that's something we should probably get into down the road as well. But essentially, the context of the great moderation as it would become following the 1990-91 recession, even that has been characterized as deflation. 
as if we experienced, or at least disinflation, as if we had experienced some sort of difference in the monetary system when that was the reason why everything had happened to begin with. Again, Greenspan speech in 1996. They weren't really following the monetary supply, so they started following these other things. As a result, as I mentioned yesterday, they have no reason what happened in the 1990s. But were the low disinflationary prices of the 1990s actually deflation? Is there a difference between, well, between prices falling for different reasons? Now, we all understand intuitively progress, free market capitalism, and what productive and efficiency, productivity and efficiency actually means for prices. Think about your cell phone, your cell phone, we don't even call them cell phones anymore, because they're actually very powerful computers that fit in the palm of your hand. And most people have one of those because the prices of that computer, as well as all the components that go into them up until recently, had become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. We got more efficient at making these kinds of things and putting them together and selling them and shipping them all over the world, integrating supply chains, but that wasn't deflation, that was efficiency. It was the secret of efficiency, this globalization that developed really since the, the, the post-war era, since the 1950s on forward, but really in the 80s and 1990s, just when the Fed started to lose uh, control, not really control, but lose the ability to to monitor the monetary system, we had this wave of globalization produce efficiency, not deflation. There's a difference. The difference between deflation and efficiency couldn't be greater, and it can't be understated. Deflation is a monetary disease, just like inflation is a monetary disease, even though there are other reasons why consumer prices could go up on balance. Supply shock. So there's really four different things here. There's inflation, monetary variety. There's inflation because of supply imbalances, uh, simple economics. There's deflation, which is the, the other side of monetary problems, too little money. And then there's productivity and efficiency. What we experienced through the great moderation was the euro dollar system bringing all of these factors together combined, creating efficiency throughout not just the U.S. economy, but the global economy in a way that meant we were all benefiting from it. Now, as I said previously, uh, many videos I've been, I've, asked, I've been asked about this, I know that, the, you know, these kinds of transformations are not uniform and, and many times they end up being messy. I grew up in the Rust Belt, so I saw the downside of globalization. But in overall terms, this efficiency, this great moderation, which had nothing to do with the Federal Reserve at all, was about efficiency. It was about productivity. It was not deflation. Deflation is something like we saw in 2008 or in the early 1930s. That kind of deflation could not be more different, and it leads to very different outcomes. An economy that is efficient, um, productive, productive a high level of productivity is one that's going to be, as I said, creating high rising standards of living, but also it's one that's going to be sustainable because we're able to do more with less. We're not being held back. We're, at, we're giving the gift of productivity and efficiency, which means we can do all sorts of other things. That's why economic activity continues to grow at a substantial and stable pace whenever you combine all these factors together to create that magic of efficiency. 
not just on a micro scale, but in this case, on a macro scale. Whereas monetary deflation, the, the having not enough money to engage in direct commercial transactions leads to all sorts of really negative, the worst kinds of economic consequences because you're interrupting commerce for the lack of a, the primary tool for commerce. Money isn't, money isn't wealth, it is a tool to engage in trade and commerce. And if there isn't enough money, then we're left with inefficient means of exchange, bartering, for example, or in extreme cases like the early 1930s, people have to sell what assets they have to get enough money in order to buy the basic necessities of life. That was the real downside disaster of the de monetary deflation of the 1930s. For example, just imagine yourself, say, as a table maker. You make tables that cost you, say, $100 of, 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 of input costs in your own time to make a really nice table to sell to the general public. But when there's not enough money and everybody has to sell what possessions they have, or a lot of people have to sell what possessions they have just to get enough money to buy food, for example, they don't have a job, their savings have been wiped out in the banking system, um, all these bank failures. So now everybody that needs cash in order to buy food, they start selling for example, their kitchen tables. But they're not gonna be selling their kitchen tables for $100, they're gonna be selling their kitchen tables for so much less just to get some cash so that they can engage in what used to be regular commerce. That's monetary deflation. Not only is that a problem for all the people who have to sell their kitchen tables, it's an enormous problem for the table makers. Because all of a sudden we have all of these tables hitting the marketplace at prices that are substantially less than it takes for you to make a table, which means not only are everybody else experiencing economic issues, the table maker is now going to be out of business because all these tables are flooding into the market for lack of money, which just spreads the deflationary disease into, as John Maynard Keynes said in his essay in 1923, it becomes the worst evil of all. In Social Consequences, he wrote, we see, therefore, that rising prices and falling prices each have their characteristic disadvantage. The inflation which causes the former, rising prices, means injustice to individuals and to classes, particularly to rentiers. It is therefore unfavorable to saving. That's the argument most people make about inflation. The deflation which causes falling prices means impoverishment to labor and to enterprise by leading entrepreneurs to restrict production. The table maker has to stop making tables because he can't do it profitably. And in their endeavor to avoid loss themselves, it becomes disastrous to employment. That does not describe the great moderation of the 1990s and middle 2000s. In fact, it's just the opposite. Efficiency, productivity, that's what happened during the Great Moderation, whereas during the 2008 monetary crisis, which spiked unemployment all over the world, yeah, Keynes's description actually applies to that. So let's talk about the flip side, which is equally a problem because we're also led to believe that inflation is the cure for deflation and deflation might be the cure for inflation. That's the kind of the operating doctrine, and I'm oversimplifying here, but that's the operating doctrine the Federal Reserve is attempting to use now, saying that we have this deflationary problem and we're going to try to fix it by stomping the brakes on the economy, creating higher unemployment. 
because they believe in the Phillips curve. And the reason they believe in these things is because of what Alan Greenspan said back in 1996. They don't know money. They can't tell you that this is inflation or a supply shock because they wouldn't know the difference. And so they're using the wrong types of policies, which is what Jeremy Rudd said in his paper that I highlighted yesterday, that the greatest danger here is not that the, not the, um, not the, the lack of control over inflation, it's the illusion of control over inflation, which is what we're, and it's not even just the illusion of control over inflation, it's the illusion of inflation itself. Now, what markets had been pricing since last year wasn't inflation at all. Yield curve flattening, euro dollar futures curve inverting, had said all along that this was a temporary transitory supply shock. There was not the, the money available to make this into a secular inflation story like the 1970s. So Alan Greenspan admitted, as Jay Powell and a number of other Federal Reserve officials would, if they if you force them to be honest, they don't know the money part of this thing, but the markets do. And the markets have said all along, this thing is going to end. As I wrote back in December of last year, when talking about 1990, uh, irrational exuberance, all that stuff, Saddam's oil shock, this was late December of, of 2021, the upside down tips break-evens, along with the flattening curves globally, are dependable signals that consumer prices are not going to continue to accelerate for very long. And they didn't. On the contrary, the markets are more and more pricing something like the early 1990s, where especially the supply shock in oil more likely contributes to their eventual downside. Which brings me to today's data release in producer prices. The producer price index for the U.S. fell to 8% year over year, which was the lowest since last July. And the producer price index peaked at 11.7% when? In March. March just so happened to be that last big surge in oil. The last big surge in oil that proved to be like March of 1990, or not March of 19, June and July of 1990, when oil prices contributed mightily to the recession. So that's what curves have been pricing all along. And then core producer prices today. The core producer price was at 6.7%, which was also the lowest since July 2021. Not only that, the month-over-month -month change was zero for the first time in a long time, whereas even more than that, even more probably important and relevant, services producer prices actually declined a bit, which suggests, as I said before, what markets have been pricing all along. This was never inflation. This was about an imbalance of money. It was an imbalance of supply. And eventually, as markets had surmised all along, all throughout the, the, this period, and with increasing certainty, leading us into the inversions that we see today, Markets were increasingly certain how this would end. Didn't need the rate hikes. You can see it in the producer prices. Producer prices had already been had already been decelerating ever since that last oil supply shock way, way back in March of earlier this year. And now the markets are increasingly sure that we're seeing the downside of consumer and producer prices, as well as commodity prices. Think about the PPI in China, which is negative year over year, which is telling us something important about the state of the global economy. 
And it leads us into the last part of inversion, which is deflationary money potential on top of all of these other things. That's what's got these curves upset. We had a supply shock that was never too much money. Now it's becoming the downside of the supply shock. We're starting to see consumer and producer prices, everything else come down at the same time as everybody is so confused about what's going on. What is inflation? What is deflation? What are the nuances and differences in all of these categories? If only people had listened to Alan Greenspan, the full speech, I can't believe I just said that, the full speech would, of what Alan Greenspan was saying way, way back in 1996. It wasn't really about irrational exuberance. It was about whether or not we could even say it's irrational or even exuberant. I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. As always, thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Huge shout out to all our Eurodollar University members, as well as Eurodollar University subscribers. Really appreciate that. Also, Markets Insider Pro, research product there with Stephen Van Meter and Tracy Schuchart. Um, information at eurodollar.university. Until next time, take care.